Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being, reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Server Member Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Das, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Metta Hour Podcast with Sharon Salzberg, where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, visit www.beherenownetwork.com slash Sharon. Enjoy listening. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg, and today I'm joined by Oren J. Sofer. Oren is an author and meditation teacher and holds a degree in comparative religion from Columbia University. He's a member of the Spirit Rock Teachers Council, a certified trainer of nonviolent communication, and a somatic experiencing practitioner for healing trauma. His first book, Say What You Mean, A Mindful Approach to Nonviolent Communication, is out in December of 2018. Oren has co-taught with me for the past several years at my annual Metta or Loving Kindness course at the Insight Meditation Society, and I'm delighted to welcome him to today's podcast. Hi, Oren. Hey, Sharon. Thanks so much for having me. 
Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, yeah, it's great great to be here and lovely that we can do this being on uh, separate coasts in different cities. Oh, yes. So I always like to start these conversations when possible with some context for the people listening. Um, and uh, if you can tell me what originally brought you to the practice of, of meditation or mindfulness and how your path with it has unfolded. Sure, yeah. Um, you know, I think like a lot of folks, um, basically having a hard time in life. You know, I was in my late teens and um, was going through some real challenges. I was using drugs a lot. Um, I was an actor in New York City and uh, going to college and um, just got pretty disconnected from myself uh, my parents were getting divorced. I had a huge falling out with uh, the friends that I had made at college. And so I was feeling lost, alone, uh, alienated, and um, in a lot of pain. And there were a few things that were kind of pointing me to uh, not only to Buddhism, but also to India. Um, some friends who had traveled to India and had life-changing experiences, um, some reading that I had been doing in college on Asian religions that really kind of started to pique my interest, uh, and one professor that I had who was an Indiophile who showed us some amazing slides and photos from his own trips to India. So uh, when the opportunity to study abroad came up, it seemed like a no-brainer to go to India and really just try to clear my head and I heard about this program uh, that Robert Pryor, who I think you know mm -hmm. from back in the early days, that Robert Pryor was running at the Burmese Vihara in Budgaya. And, uh, you know, I looked at the program description and it said, uh, no sex, no drugs, up at 5 a.m. every morning meditating. And, uh, <laughs> and as at the age of 19, I said, sign me up. I, I wanted to get as far away from everything I knew and really just clear the decks and look inside a little more deeply. And so that's how it started. And it was one of those things, the first time I heard the teachings, uh, it was with Manindraji uh, and a man by the name of Godwin Samaratne mm -hmm. from Sri Lanka. Yeah, and um, the very first night I remember listening to the talk and having this feeling inside like I'd come home. And it was as if these two people were speaking about things that I had known were true my entire life, but no one had ever said. And yeah, that was, that was the beginning. And pretty much since then, um, I've had a steady meditation practice. There wasn't any doubt or waffling. That's, that's really amazing. I've often said that I think that's the... Um, I don't know, it's kind of like the uncelebrated but very, very important feeling we can have it. Oh, I knew this already. You know, I didn't know the words exactly or I didn't know how to give voice to it, but mm -hmm. this makes so much sense from within. I've, you know, I've, I've gone through something that, uh, it's not always that way. Of course, sometimes it does feel like a, a brand new door opening when we encounter mm -hmm. this, you know, particular perspective of mindfulness or compassion or or something like that. But many, many times I do think there is this heartfelt kind of recognition, like, oh, right, you know, 
here it is. You know, finally someone sang it out loud and uh, something like that. Yeah, yeah, that was that was it exactly. And what's what's interesting for me was I had a very similar experience when I first came in touch with nonviolent communication, which was uh, a few years later. I was working at IMS in the kitchen in Barry, um, and what I was finding was that the kind of quiet and clarity and open-heartedness that I was experiencing on the cushion in my meditation practice would very quickly evaporate whenever there was anything tense or difficult with like a coworker in the kitchen, uh, let alone family, like forget it with, <laughs> with mm-hmm. my parents or my brother. Um, and so I felt like there was this piece missing for me for how to take uh, what I felt so deeply and clearly in my meditation practice into my relationships and my life. And um, then another person who you no doubt will know, Michael Freeman, mm-hmm. uh, came to IMS to do um, a communication training for the staff. And uh, he wasn't teaching nonviolent communication, but just the very idea that communication was a learnable skill mm-hmm. was to- totally new to me and blew me away. I said, oh my gosh, I can actually study and learn how to do this better. And so then from there, I sought out a class uh, over in Amherst in the Pioneer Valley um, that was an eight-week course, and it was a similar experience of first hearing the perspective that nonviolent communication is based on, which is the premise that as human beings, we all share the same fundamental needs, these kind of basic root longings for fulfillment and happiness and well-being, and that we differ in our preferences and ideas about how to meet those needs, and that if we can understand one another at this deeper level and really have a sense of connection on the level of our needs, that it's much easier to work together and figure things out. When I heard that, um, that was like another revelation that made complete sense to me and also opened up a whole new world. I remember the very first class realizing I have needs. (laughs) Oh my gosh, there are things that are important to me. And uh, it, it put into perspective all of the struggles and conflicts I was having that oh, I'm feeling this way for a reason. It's mm-hmm. not just that I'm getting reactive or being petty. There's, there's actually something important to me here underneath these arguments or challenges or strong emotions I'm having with my family or coworkers. And uh, not only did that help me to have more compassion for myself instead of beating myself up, why am I getting so reactive? What's wrong with me? Um, but it also started to give me a language to speak to others about what was happening for me and what was important for me in a way that they could hear instead of blaming or criticizing them. So I'm curious. First, I should say uh, IMS is the Insight Meditation Society in Barry, Massachusetts, uh, which I co-founded in 1976. So it's been there and still there and flourishing. And thank you for working in the kitchen. Um, yes, thank, thank you for founding it. I'm forever <laughs> grateful. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Uh, and there are a few things. First, I want to ask you a question, and then I want to uh, pick up on something that you said. So when did loving-kindness practice figure into your 
um, your whole path. Yeah. Uh, we did loving kindness at the very beginning. And I wasn't, some people like are allergic to metta, to loving kindness, as you know. Mm-hmm. That, that wasn't me. I didn't have a strong negative reaction, but I also didn't really, I didn't kind of pick it up and feel like, oh, wow, this is amazing. It Again, it's interesting. It wasn't until a few years later that I, I was actually, again, going through a really rough period and uh, feeling really down on myself, uh, you know, kind of lost in one of those um, really powerful stories that we can, we can have that there's something fatally wrong mm-hmm. <laughs> with, with me and my character. And, uh, and I, was, I was sitting a metta retreat, a loving-kindness retreat at the Insight Meditation Society. Um, and so it was, it was then that... Um, the power of loving kindness really became clear to me. And I remember having one conversation with one of the teachers, uh, Myoshin, um, and, and crying just in tears that uh, I don't feel like I deserve this. Mm. You know, I don't feel like, it, I remember asking her, is it really okay to wish myself well? And that I needed that reassurance from someone else to be like, yeah, it, it is, you know. It's okay to do that. Um, and so that retreat was really powerful, and I really felt the, the healing potential of, of loving kindness. Yeah, I mean, you know, they are, certainly mindfulness and loving kindness are very, very connected. They are distinct methodologies. And so it even for people who uh, even ardently pursue mindfulness they may not be that familiar or interested as you said and in, in uh, exploring the domain of loving kindness so it, it's its own sort of journey in itself yeah um so part of what i i was thinking um listening to you was that uh it sounds like you like myself have a strong sense of a path like i've often said through the years if i've said to people you know i really want to learn how to write like there's a skill as a craft um, and people say, well, why do you want to learn how to write? You keep writing books. And I said, well, yeah, that could be a problem. But um, part of it is that I have a strong sense of a path, you know, that there are ways of cultivating uh, certain strengths. There are ways of uh, bolstering strengths to replace weaknesses. There's um, there's an understanding of, uh, oh, this is a skillful way. This is a more skillful way to put something across. Um, this is a less skillful way. So that's so similar to communicating in any way. Um, and one of the things within the uh, Buddhist tradition that I think was significant for me was that the the words actually are skillful and unskillful rather than good right. and bad. You know, like you're bad because you, um, you don't know how to do something or because you did it incorrectly or you were reckless or forgetful. Uh, it's not that it was bad, you know, and that you, as you said, you don't have a character flaw, but it's unskillful. It's not going to get you what you want. If you want true happiness, it's, it's kind of clumsy. It's um, not getting the point across. It's, you know, going to cause some kind of suffering in in a ripple effect toward you or uh, toward others. And so um, I believe very strongly in a path and, and uh, this, the efficacy of having a sense of skillful and unskillful. And 
Um, I think that's part of the basis of your book, actually, is skillful and unskillful action or communication. Yeah, it is. And, you know, the the practice of nonviolent communication uh, and also some of the perspectives um, uh, of trauma healing that I've learned from Peter Levine Mm -hmm. in uh, the somatic experiencing work have have become uh, a part of my path. And one of the things I talk about a little bit in the book is that um, it's kind of similar to what you were saying about mindfulness and loving kindness, you know, that these, they have distinct methodologies, mm-hmm. um, but, but they're, they're not separate. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're, they're really, in, in one sense, two sides of the same coin, awareness and love. And so in the same way for me, um, the practice of meditation and mindfulness uh, and, you know, the Buddhist path um, is not separate from learning the skill or the craft of how do we speak and listen with greater compassion, clarity, uh, and awareness. Mm-hmm. You know, we know, we know that, you know, right speech is within the tradition um, and there's some beautiful guidelines for that, you know, to say what's truthful, to only say things that are helpful, mm-hmm. that are coming from a good heart, and to have some level of attention and awareness of, of timing, of what's actually appropriate mm-hmm. in the context. Uh, but the tradition, in, in my view, falls a little bit short in terms of the mechanics. Like, how do we actually do that? Right. The, the tradition is amazing in terms mm-hmm. of the level mm-hmm. of instruction and technology that's given to understand the mind mm-hmm. and to train the mind. Um, but making that bridge between the internal mm-hmm. functioning mm-hmm. of thought and emotion and sensation into speech and relationship, there's some gaps there. Mm-hmm. And so those gaps for me have really been filled in by the framework and the training of nonviolent communication, which really gets at the stuff of our life and our personalities and our relationships and the things that get us going and reactive to transform some of the ways that we've been conditioned to think um, in terms of right and wrong and good and bad. Because, you know, as, as we know, we, we live within a whole society um, that's based upon evaluating people mm-hmm. uh, in terms of right and wrong and good and bad, that there's an authority uh, that has the power to punish or reward us. Like that's what we learn in school. And that's the way our whole government and judicial system works. And that's a strategy. It's a strategy to um, provide safety and order um, and meet basic needs of a society, whether or not it's working <laughs> is another question. Um, so, um, but when we, one of the things that um, Marshall Rosenberg discovered and uh, in his work and why he named the practice nonviolent communication was that when we use these concepts of right and wrong and good and bad and, and take them as of moralistic judgments as, as absolutes in some way, um, that it's very easy to move from that into justifying violence. Mm. Because if someone's bad, if someone did something wrong, then they deserve to be punished. And so, you know, we've seen throughout history the way the 
the logic of right, wrong, good, bad, the holy war, mm-hmm. you know, can be used to justify horrific um, crimes and, uh, you know, uh, uh, yeah, can be used to justify terrible violence. So the, the perspective of nonviolent communication is that um, it's more skillful, to come back to that word, it's more skillful to think of things in terms of human needs. So the result of thinking in terms of our needs for safety, respect, equity, belonging, education, medicine, uh, clean air and water, when we can talk about that level of what we want and take it out of who's right and who's wrong, Mm -hmm. there's, there's much more room to understand one another and also to actually start brainstorming and thinking collaboratively about solutions that are geared towards what's underneath things, what's actually important to us. Well, I can remember, you know, one of the things I've always thought about um, skillful communication uh, in general is that it, it's also about learning how to speak the truth and, and how to be honest, even though uh, there may be a degree of vulnerability that we're revealing in that communication, which we may consider more or less appropriate for certain contexts. You know, that's that's a decision. But I can remember uh, when we brought in um, some friends who were communications um, facilitators or coaches to work with the staff at, at the Insight Meditation Society. And um, mm-hmm. I witnessed – there wasn't particularly nonviolent communication, but it was a system like that. Mm-hmm. And I, I witnessed this one staff person go from – uh, a basically accusatory message uh, toward another staff person, like, uh, you know, you never, you know, care about anybody but yourself or something like that, uh, and mm-hmm. just be guided through the process, in that case, the process of using I language rather than you language or disguised um, you language. And and as it came down to her um, real message, you know what she was actually feeling and and what had what had gone on her her message became i have so wanted to be your friend and uh mm. it's just never happened and when you walked by me with your lunch tray and and went and sat somewhere else i just felt oh this will never happen and uh and i thought that's the truth you know that's the truth mm. of of what she was going through and what she really had to say and and it wasn't the sort of wholesale blaming of of the other person and I thought this is amazing you know just from that one particular skill to be able to come to that place of honesty if that feels like the the appropriate way to do it and you know how uh, amazing a process of self-revelation that is and revelation or revealing of oneself toward others self-disclosure if you choose that and uh, I, I could just see how profound a process it was. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I've experienced the same thing in myself and see it time and time again when I teach. And it, it is, it's a, it's a profound and transformative um, process and realization. And that's exactly what the training of nonviolent communication is designed to help us to do, to, to learn how do we actually 
translate those messages in ourself so that we're more clear about what's actually happening. And like you said, you know, then it, it's up to us to determine what's the most appropriate and skillful thing to say or the right time. But, um, you know, these ways of thinking and perceiving in terms of blame and criticism and judgment, they're, uh, Marshall Rosenberg used to say they're tragic, suicidal expressions of mm. our unmet needs. Mm. Suic- suicidal is a little bit of a, of a strong way of putting it, you know. Um, but I think what he's pointing to is, um, you know, when we want something from somebody, when we uh, feel hurt by their actions and would like them to listen to us or to do something differently, you know, how wise and helpful of a strategy is it to blame them and tell them what's wrong with them? Mm-hmm, you know, that, mm-hmm. how, how often has that ever worked to help somebody to feel more uh, compassion and willingness to, towards us? Um, so we can do that work of um, really honoring and listening to those messages. It's not that, you know, the, that language of blame and judgment is um, it's vital because it's carrying our life energy inside. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's just one or two degrees removed, as you were saying, from what's actually the truth of the situation mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. us. So we can use the process of nonviolent communication to pay attention to what to, what happened in the situation. Like you said, in that situation, it was, you know, the person walked past them with their lunch tray. Okay, well, that's what actually happened to how we feel. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, what's going on for me? I feel hurt. You know, I, I feel disappointed and lonely. Um, rather than the way our feelings get expressed in terms of um, judging the other person, I feel rejected. Mm-hmm. I feel like you don't care about me, which are, these are thoughts and interpretations mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. what the other person is doing to me. So, and, you know, mindfulness practice is such an asset here because we can become aware of those thoughts and then use the power of our attention to inquire a little bit more deeply. Okay, well, how do I actually feel on the inside? What's really going on here? And then the, the, the real key, the real transformative piece is to move from those emotions to what matters underneath it. You know, why? 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 why does this matter to me? What's really important here? And, you know, she discovered in that example, uh, I want to be friends, mm-hmm, you know, I'm mm-hmm. wanting connection and companionship. And, um, and then from there to actually be able to work together to say, you know, I'd like some understanding or, you know, how can we, where can we go from here? You, you said one other thing, Sharon, that I want to, mm-hmm. I want to comment on, which is I statements. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, even for me, I've been doing this work for over 15 years. I, something inside, uh, kind of like my skin crawls a little when I, when I hear the word I statements. Um, and I think a lot of us, um, maybe have had experiences of somebody coming back from a communication training or a workshop and, Uh, speaking in ways that are really convoluted (laughs) and complex uh, and artificial, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And and you're like, what are you saying? Or it sounds, it seems like they're um, using really fancy words uh, to still run the same trip of blaming us Mm -hmm. and trying to manipulate things. And so one of the key distinctions that I like to make in communication training is... um, that the practices and the tools um, 
aren't the point, mm-hmm. right? That those those are there to help uh, transform where we're coming from inside, and that that's actually what's most important is um, what's our consciousness? You know, what what are we actually believing, and where are we coming from? If we're still believing inside, you shouldn't have done this, and you're wrong. It doesn't really matter the words that we use because that's going to come through. The other person's going to feel it, and we're still going to be locked in an argument. So the work, the tools are meant to help us actually shift our perspective so that we can see things mm-hmm. more clearly and really understand, okay, no, this is what's happening for me, and this is how what you did or said affected me, and I'd like you, I'd really love for you to understand that, you know, do you have some space to listen? Mm. That's beautiful. So let's talk specifically about your book for a few minutes. Yeah. Um, congratulations, by the way. <laughs> Thank it's, you. It is really an accomplishment. Um, so uh, there are three aspects, three main aspects to your book. Is that correct? Uh, yeah. yeah. Mindfulness, nonviolent communication, and healing. So I think we've covered nonviolent communication pretty well, unless there's something specific you'd like to say but in terms of mindfulness um some of it you know we've talked about already but i'm curious do you talk about mindfulness of your intention or mindfulness of your body while you're speaking how does that figure in yeah i do i I talk a lot about both of those you know um i'll i'll start with something personal which is that um when i first started practicing these communication tools um, it was in a class with a lot of people who didn't have a mindfulness practice. And um, what I found was that, um, and what I found over the years of teaching as well, is that when people have a mindfulness practice, uh, it's much easier to integrate the tools. Um, and I think that's for two reasons. First and foremost, <sighs> And I say this again and again in the book and when I teach, you know, communication is not about what we say. Mm-hmm. It's about where we're coming from, which is our intention, and about the quality of connection and understanding that we're able to create with the other person. And the foundation of that connection and understanding is mindfulness. Or the way that I like to put it when I teach this stuff is presence. Because that for me, presence... Um, it includes the body more than that word mindfulness seems mm-hmm. to on the surface. Mm-hmm. Because if we're not here, like if we're not actually paying attention and really present, you know, good luck having a meaningful conversation with somebody. Mm-hmm. So mindfulness is really the foundation of any kind of skillful or effective communication for the simple fact that we need to be here before we can understand something. So um, there are a lot of really um, specific and concrete tools in the book for how do we develop mindfulness in relationship and in communication? Because it's it's not easy. It's hard. There's so many patterns and so much momentum and energy in a conversation. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, one of the one of the main tools uh, that I teach that you know folks out there can start practicing right away for bringing mindfulness into communication is the very simple practice of pausing, which is a, it's a basic mindfulness practice. Um, and just, you know, half a breath, 
mm-hmm. of a pause in a conversation can make a world of difference between saying something really hurtful or unskillful that you know could take weeks to repair um, to recognizing mm, maybe better if I don't say that. Mm. That's great. And um, I'm curious if the word healing or the term healing, like uh, healing within, healing between groups, between people, like what do you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's so many different dimensions, right, to healing. Um, it shows up in a few different ways. Um, one of the frameworks that informs the book um, is the framework of trauma healing specifically mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and the work of Peter Levine and somatic experiencing. Um, again, one of the things that I found uh, in myself um, and when I work with, with students or groups is that um, if we have an understanding of how our nervous system works and if we can start to pay attention to our level of sympathetic activation um, and watch out for getting flooded or overwhelmed, that, that's an essential skill for communication, re- really being able to track that and, uh, and self-regulate. Um, so that's one, that's one place that it shows up. And there's, um, there's a lot of guidance and practices in the book to, to learn some of those basic tools. Um, but... <sighs> You know, I, I think it's rare to live for, you know, any amount of time and, and not sustain some wounds emotionally mm-hmm. or psychologically. And uh, if we're not able to become aware of those wounds that we carry, whether they're uh, individual wounds, you know, from a relationship or a situation or uh, wounds that are more historical or intergenerational um, wounds from the violence of poverty or racism Mm -hmm. or homophobia, uh, you know, the ways that society doesn't see us as individuals, but uh, kind of puts us in boxes, you know, those, those create such deep, um, such deep places of pain that uh, there's a healing that's, uh, that's required, not, not only on an individual level, but as, as you suggested, um, within relationships when there's been past pain and, and on a societal level, you know, like in our country, we, we still have not kind of come to terms with, in a collective way, our history mm-hmm. in terms of the attempted genocide of First Nation people or our history of slavery. And so, you know, as a society collectively, I think we carry those wounds and we're, we're seeing that, you know, uh, under the surface or explicitly in so much that's happening today. So the more that we can become conscious of those areas in ourselves and in, in ourself, in our relationships, uh, and in our communities and start to use the whole range of skills that we have, you know, this book is, is one piece, right? Um, but there's so much more that's needed. The more we can move in that direction of healing, the more chance we have to actually create communities that are meeting people's needs, which, uh, you know, is, is coming apart a lot in so many places in our country and around the world. Uh, it does seem, it feels like a, a time of 
dissolution of disarray of disruption and a lot of diswords. Um, you know, mm-hmm. not, not, it doesn't feel like a time particularly, except you know, for individuals, of course, perhaps, but. You know, it doesn't feel so much like a time of integration and wholeness and um, mm. the end of fragmentation and so on. So it, it it takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of consciousness. And one thing I'm struck by in all of those realms that you talked about is that listening, you know, listening to oneself, knowing what you want even, um, listening to the context, you know, what might be a skillful way of expressing it, um, you know, is, is a big component in in all of these elements of this path yeah absolutely and it's a you know it's a central part of of communication and of and of spiritual practice and there's so many there's so many ways to listen you know we can uh we can listen to what someone is saying to the content but we can also listen more deeply we can listen for how they're feeling uh, we can listen to what for what matters to them and mm-hmm. what's actually important underneath the words. Uh, and I think perhaps in the most profound way we can we can just listen, right? Like we can just listen wholeheartedly. And I mean, I know when I'm upset, uh, when I'm in distress or in pain, someone else listening can be so healing. It's, uh, it's amazing. It's such a gift. One of the things that I do whenever I teach, uh, even if it's just a, an evening or a, a day workshop, um, I always have people do a listening exercise and just give a little bit of guidance on, you know, listening wholeheartedly mm-hmm. with complete presence um, and uh, leaning into, you know, what's in this person's heart, like mm-hmm. what really matters to them. Right, well, I assume when you say that, you know... Um you wouldn't i mean i wouldn't want <laughs> to speak in eye language i wouldn't want somebody to assume they know what i'm feeling you know or what i'm wanting uh however quiet they looked you know like uh i can you know it, it would uh i find it um difficult when somebody says to me i can tell that you're angry well actually you can't you know right um you know so i, I assume there's a skill in what you're talking about so that you're not making that kind of assumption about someone else's intention or or their deepest desire or or something like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the, the listening, the aim of the listening is is it's that intention to understand. Um, but there's always that there's always a sense of humility there and we don't know until we check. That's right. And that and that's another skill. So there's the listening, there's the receptivity. Um, and then there's that sense, and this is one of the main building blocks of communication, which is checking, did I hear what you wanted me to hear? Right? Here's what I, here's what I got from what you said. Is this accurate? Mm-hmm. And so that, that's one of the things that, that's where communication often breaks down. It's, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on listening, and uh, listening is often the bottleneck, especially in conflict, right? Mm-hmm. If, if neither person can listen, we're not actually having a conversation anymore. We're just talking at each mm-hmm. other. But even when we're listening, if we don't check, was message sent, message received? If we don't complete that loop, and, mm-hmm. and uh, if, if we don't complete that cycle and close the loop, then we don't actually know if communication happened and we don't get the sense of completion or relief from feeling heard. And that's one of the main aims of listening is is to really confirm that understanding is happening 
And sometimes we know, you know, nonverbal body language, we can tell when we're understanding each other, but particularly when things are charged, it's so powerful to check our understanding out with someone. Hmm. And there's some really simple and kind of very natural ways of doing that, you know, without, again, without sounding technique or like I'm, you know, using a communication tool mm-hmm, on you, mm-hmm. which is like one of the, one of the most reliable ways to, to make a conversation go awry. Right. Um, you know, but just saying like, Hey, I really want to, I really want to make sure I'm understanding. Here's, here's what I think you're saying. Here's what I got from what you said. Is this right? You know, did I get it? Is there anything else you want me to hear or understand? Am I on the same page? And just really checking in a genuine way. And if we do that, if we do that in a conversation, um, you know, two or three times, that will start to shift the whole tone and trajectory of what's happening. Because the other person really starts to feel, okay, this, this person's actually, not only are they listening, but they're actually trying to understand me. And then a lot of that charge and energy and defensiveness can start to subside because there's nothing to push against anymore. And this is a little bit what you talked about before when you were um, telling that story about the woman at IMS Mm -hmm, who had that mm -hmm. really powerful transformation. So so one of the tools that we can develop, I, I like to call it, it's like an Aikido move. When somebody judges us or blames us or kind of attacks us in some way. You know, we have a, we have a few different choices for how we can respond. Um, we can take it personally, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which uh, the other person <laughs> might enjoy, uh, but doesn't make life very fun or enjoyable for us. Uh, we can throw it back at the other person and judge them and blame them, which only adds fuel to the fire. Um, or we can do this Aikido move of just trying to hear what's in the person's heart. Mm-hmm. Like, what's going on for you? This isn't, you know, I may have done or said something that affected you, but um, really there's something that you're feeling and something that's important to you that you're trying to communicate mm-hmm. to me. So let me see if I can just understand that. And when we respond to somebody's blame or judgment with that kind of openness and sincere interest and understanding what's true for them, it just, it can totally defuse a situation. So can you give me a specific example, like somebody, and and somebody who's not invested in being mindful, you know, for example. Totally, yeah, yeah, sure. Somebody hurls some blame at you. uh, What would be an example of how you might respond that would elicit their uh, deeper connection to their own motive Mm -hmm. or their own feeling sure yeah so somebody just says to you you know you're too critical you're always you're always on my case you know you're always riding me Mm -hmm. and so to respond to that and and say something like it sounds like you could really use a little bit more space uh and autonomy and you know some of the things that i'm doing or saying are are, aren't really giving you that if i got that right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know so i'm just I'm not hearing the story that I'm too critical and I'm micromanaging you and there's something wrong with me. That's just the way they're expressing themselves. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to hear like, okay, well, what's important to you here? You know, or someone says, you know, are you aware that, you know, uh, doing that is actually being really condescending? Mm. And so um, to kind of pause and go like, okay, um, 
thank you for telling me that. It's important for me to know. It's not where I'm wanting to come from, but it, it really sounds like something about the way I was relating just totally didn't meet your need for respect. Mm-hmm. Um, is, is that, is that right? And then the other person's going to say more, you know, they're going to say, yeah, you know, you're just, uh, you're just controlling the situation. You're just uh, thinking that you can direct how this goes. Ah, I see. So um, it, it sounds like the ways that I've been showing up um, aren't giving you enough space to, no, no, it's not that you're not giving me space. You're dominating. Ah, okay. So you really want me to kind of honor the way that you're trying to uh, go about things here and um, the way that I was offering my suggestions or input um, seemed like I was saying that this is the way it has to be rather than just showing up as a suggestion. Yeah, it seemed like you just feel totally entitled, right? So it keeps coming. Mm-hmm. Um, and to, to not buy into the story, to keep responding by just hearing what the person is saying. Yeah, so you're really wanting some more humility and um, some more, I don't know, just some more respect is kind of what I keep hearing. Yeah, that would have been nice. Thanks, you know, I... I Really appreciate you telling me that because it's totally not where I'm wanting to come from. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, and then, once the person feels understood, right? This is one of the key things. This is one of the key mistakes we make when there's a conflict is that we try to explain ourselves mm-hmm. before hearing the other person. And whenever we do that, whenever we try to explain where we're coming from before the other person feels heard or understood, it's going to sound like we're defending ourselves. It's going to sound like we're dismissing their experience. So the first step, if we can, uh, is to try to help the other person feel heard and understood and to really get where they're coming from. Once that's complete, once they're like, yeah, you got it, then we can shift the focus to ourselves and say, you know, I'd really love to share with you where I was coming from and mm-hmm. what I was trying to say. Would you be open to hearing that? Mm-hmm. And that sense of, of checking if the person is willing to listen to us is also really powerful because when we ask permission for somebody to listen, we get a lot of willingness, you know, we're getting buy-in and then we kind of, they give us the floor. So now we have a little bit of space and then we can share, you know, here's what I was, here's what I was trying to say. Here's where I was coming from. That's great. I just had this image of um, uh, the day when we, we have like uh, books on, on eyeglasses and stuff like that, that we wear. And I this, had this image of people walking around thinking, I need page 38 right now, you know, like in the middle of a conversation and somehow flipping to the page they need not look like they're reading a book, but they're just wearing glasses. And they remember, oh, I should ask this, or this would be interesting to to bring up now, because I, I see it as a skill. Um, and it wasn't even apparent to me in thinking about it, uh, just kind of the subtlety and the um, possibility in in what you're saying. So mm. I think that's fabulous. And I'm wondering if um, just as we close, if you could actually lead us in a practice you sort of have already, but maybe you can uh, yeah. kind of continue on and lead us in a, you know, a distinct practice from your book. Sure. Ab- absolutely. You know, the, um, as we've been talking about the foundation of all of these tools is our awareness and the, uh, our sense of clarity about what's going on inside. So, yeah, why don't we why don't we do that? Great. So, um, just invite you to sit comfortably 
You can let your eyes close or just let your gaze become still. And take a few moments to settle in, feeling your body, becoming aware of your breath. And then think of a situation where you'd like to get clearer about what's happening for you and maybe work something out with someone else. And when we first learn these tools and exercises, it's generally recommended to not choose something too challenging or difficult so that we can learn the tool. So once you've got a situation in mind, uh, the first step is to just see if you can become aware of how you're feeling about it. And if you notice thoughts of blame or judgment, like I feel attacked, I feel misunderstood, I feel judged, things that tell a story about what the other person is doing, just go ahead and ask yourself the question, how do I feel on the inside? when I tell myself that they're attacking me or judging me or not understanding me? How do I feel on the inside? And see if you can bring some gentleness or kindness to any uncomfortable emotions that might be present. Just breathing, feeling your body. And then go ahead and ask the question, what matters to me here? You know, what's actually most important? And if what comes to mind is wanting the other person to do something, wanting to change them, use that as information to go deeper and ask yourself, well, if they did that, if I had that, then what would that give me? What matters about that to me? Now just keep asking that question, and what matters about that to me? Or if I had that, then what would that give me? Until you arrive at something that feels core. It might be a word or a phrase. Maybe you want more respect, more consideration, or to be included. So we, we would call this our needs, the deeper values or what matters in the situation. 
And sometimes we'll feel a sense of clarity or settling when we really identify what's most important to us. And then if you want an advanced practice, then you could stretch your imagination to try to see what might be important to the other person. Can I have some empathy and entertain the possibility that underneath their actions or words, there's something that they actually want that I could connect with and respect? What do you think they might be longing for or wanting? at the most basic level. You'll know you get there when you feel a sense of relief or some kind of connection, like, yeah, I get that. I would want that for them. If you can't get behind it, it's not a need. It's not the kind of deeper value that we're aiming for. And so then having considered what's important to you and what might be most important to the other person, you can consider how you might want to approach the situation differently. Okay. Wow, thank you so much. And thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Sharon. Yeah, to learn more about Oren's work and teachings, you can visit his website at www.orenjsofer, that's O-R-E-N-J-A-Y-S-O-F-E-R.com. And I encourage you to get a copy of his book, Say What You Mean, which is available in December 2018, everywhere that books are sold. Thank you. Thanks, Sharon. Thank you for listening. For more information about Sharon's many offerings and her ongoing teaching schedule, please visit her website at SharonSalzberg.com.